We're going to be in the book of Isaiah here for the next few Sundays in the month of December for the season of Advent. Isaiah chapter 1 is where we will be tonight. Isaiah chapter 1. I thought we would get a little bit further into the book with some other selections, but it won't happen. Again, these are new sermons for me, and um, I mentioned to someone by telephone and by a letter, well, it's good to be back in the saddle of preaching so frequently. It's good to be back in that saddle. Um, But there's also that pressure to be ready each Sunday and when it's new material. And so I'm being blessed. I hope you will be too. (laughs) Uh, But it, it is good. I mean that genuinely. It's good to be back in the Word of God and learning. This is the Word of God, uh, the book of Isaiah here, uh, chapter 1. I'll be reading uh, some different selections, even as I have it here in the bulletin for us. This is the Word of the Lord. The vision of Isaiah, the son of Amos, which he saw concerning Judah and Jerusalem in the days of Uzziah and Jotham, Ahaz and Hezekiah, kings of Judah. Hear, O heavens, and give ear, O earth, for the Lord has spoken. Children... Have I reared and brought up, but they have rebelled against me. The ox knows its owner, and the donkey its master's crib. But Israel does not know, my people do not understand. Ah, sinful nation, a people laden with iniquity, offspring of evildoers, children who deal corruptly. They have forsaken the Lord. They despise the Holy One of Israel. They are utterly estranged. Then run your eyes down to verse 12, please. Verse 12, when you come to appear before me, who is required of you the trampling of my courts? Bring no more vain offerings. Incense is an abomination to me. New moon and Sabbath and the calling of convocations. I cannot endure iniquity in solemn assembly. Your new moons and your appointed feasts my soul hates. They have become a burden to me. I am weary of bearing them. When you spread out your hands, I will hide my eyes from you. Even though you make many prayers, I will not listen. Your hands are full of blood. Wash yourselves. Make yourselves clean. Remove the evil of your deeds from before my eyes. Cease to do evil. Learn to do good. Seek justice. Correct oppression. Bring justice to the fatherless. Plead the widow's cause. Come now. Let us reason together, says the Lord. Though your sins are like scarlet, they shall be as white as snow. Though they are red like crimson, they shall become like wool. If you are willing and obedient, you shall eat the good of the land. But if you refuse and rebel, you shall be eaten by the sword, for the mouth of the Lord has spoken. How the faithful city has become a whore. She who was full of justice, righteousness lodged in her, but now murderers. Your silver has become dross. Your best wine mixed with water. Your princes are rebels and companions of thieves. Everyone loves a bribe and runs after gifts. They do not bring justice to the fatherless, and the widow's cause does not come to them. This is the reading of God's word. Let's pray. Father, we lift up this time to you for help and strength and guidance. The new purpose, Lord, of serving you and pressing on in Jesus Christ. Our Lord and Savior, our Master and King, our Guide and Teacher, indeed the Friend of Sinners. 
quicken our hearts, we pray, and illumine our minds. And Father, show us wonderful things from your word, the law of God, that in such a bounty of gifts that you lavish upon us in your word, Lord, we'd be good stewards, good stewards of your truth, to walk in it and to seek Christ's face all by the Spirit's power. Be with us, we pray now, in Jesus' name. Amen. For many, many years as a Christian, I would confuse Advent and Christmas. I'd confuse it. Uh, it's really only been the last handful of years that I've come to see something about what is meant by Advent. Advent is from the old Latin word, to come, and that the Lord is coming. And uh, I would always think, well, I'll use the word Advent when I'm speaking with God's people because it sounds more sacred, maybe more acceptable than Christmas, right? Because of all the commercialism and connotations that go with Christmas in our day and age. Some go so far to say that we shouldn't confuse them because there are Advent Christmas carols and there are Christmas Christmas carols. <laughs> uh, some suggest that uh, the, the concept of Advent in longing for the coming of the Lord, that's its word, to come, come Lord. And we, we had those kinds of words back in the book of Revelation, at the very end of the book of Revelation, right? Remember that? You know, he's named earlier in the book as the Alpha and the Omega, Jesus is. He's named earlier as the Alpha and the Omega. But then at the very end of the book, he says, and surely I will come quickly. Now, we, we oftentimes use that language, come quickly, Lord Jesus, when we're in a time of tragedy or trial, right? Times of hardship. Something is going on, like a Hurricane Harvey. Come quickly, Lord Jesus. A shooting like over at Santa Fe High School. Come quickly, Lord Jesus. That's all speaking of the Advent. Come, Lord, come. So the Advent puts us into Old Testament history. It really does. Because we're standing with Israel and the people of God where they're longing for Messiah. Come, they're longing for Messiah. Christmas is the fulfillment of that coming. Christmas is the celebration of Emmanuel. God comes, he's born, the living God of heaven and earth, now in flesh. That's John chapter 1, all those lessons we've learned some weeks ago, of course. The Son of God has now appeared. So it's important that we not confuse these kinds, you know, these kinds of thoughts in church history and in our basic theology, what it means to celebrate the Advent, a series of weeks where we give focus to the coming of the Lord. Now, of course, right? Of course. We're living on this side of Calvary, right? We're living on this side of the resurrection, the ascension. And so, in a sense, we celebrate Advent by longing for the coming of the Lord. So we have a parallel going on here, whether it be Old Testament Israel longing for the coming, or now that Christ has come in the incarnation and has won salvation there at Golgotha and the empty tomb. Uh, and then he, and he told his disciples when he was, you know, ascended there um, on that day of ascension, and he said, uh, don't no longer gaze up into the sky. I will yet return to you just as you see me leave, I will appear to you once again. We long for that coming once again. So Advent has that kind of application to us. We long for the coming of the Lord. But in, you know, in my own Christian life, I've often confused those. Well, you see, what's so good about thinking about Advent and the, and the theological concept of the coming of the Lord and the longing for the coming of the Lord is it, it puts us right back here into books like Isaiah, it puts us into the coming of the Lord, reminds us that our God is the God who initiated 
his faithful work way back in the days of the early days of Genesis, and that initiating of the faithful work to bring a people to himself and to carry that people with him. We identify with that same people. And out of the Old Testament, there's a longing for the coming of the Lord. And thereby, when we're in a book like Isaiah, we are standing in the sandals and in the shoes of Old Testament Israel with these kinds of lessons that they would experience. Why? Because of the bondage of sin, right? It's the bondage of sin. They knew, whether it be back in uh, some other prophet's day or the days of Joshua and Caleb, they knew something about the lingering effects of the bondage of sin. And they, would, they, would, they were longing for that day when Messiah would come. We, too, know something about the effects of remaining sin in our own lives. Something about remaining sin. We long for the coming of the Lord. Come quickly, Lord Jesus, that we might be indeed set free from the tyranny of sin and Satan and uh, the devil himself. So through the lens of Isaiah tonight, we'd like to look at a couple of lessons here, thinking about Advent, but certainly having an eye on Christmas, the fulfillment that the Lord indeed has come. Our God has come to this earth in the flesh, born of the Virgin Mary. But we're going to look at a couple of lessons here tonight. First is the setting in which Isaiah ministers. Look at chapter 1 here in these opening verses, uh, verse 1. The vision of Isaiah. Here is the setting in which he was ministering. The vision of Isaiah, the son of Amos, which he saw concerning Judah and Jerusalem in the days of Uzziah, Jotham, Ahaz, and Hezekiah, kings of Judah. Look over now. I am going to skip over to this chapter because I want you to see this again. It's repeated for us. Look at chapter 3. Chapter 3, verse 1. It's repeated for us again, this language of the setting where he was ministering. Isaiah, a prophet. Chapter 3, at verse 1. For behold, the Lord God of hosts is taking away from Jerusalem and from Judah support and supply, all support of bread, all support of water, the mighty man and the soldier, the judge and the prophet, the diviner and the elder, and so on and so forth. What I want you to see is the setting and the scene where Isaiah ministered is in Jerusalem and the, and the nearby environs there, the close proximity of the land of Judah itself. Now, Isaiah focused on the city of Jerusalem. A lesson already for us tonight for some application. Cities are significant. Cities are significant in the unfolding drama of God's saving message throughout the Bible. Cities are significant. We know of stories where cities are built to man's shame, right? Cities are built to man's shame and ruin. In his ruin, in his foolishness, a city is built. And he says, in so many words, man says he's mustered this strength. Look who I am. I'm thinking there in Genesis 11, of course, of the Tower of Babel as a great example. But cities also in the scripture represent the world in miniature. They can, cities in the Bible can be places of refuse, you know, to be despised. But also cities have a lesson in the Bible to be the world in miniature. Cities portray man's identity, men and women, made in the image of God. Men and women are about building 
cities, exercising dominion. Remember Adam and Eve? They were instructed, be fruitful and multiply, fill the earth, subdue it and have dominion. The Bible itself moves from the garden, that's Eden, to the city. The Bible itself moves from the garden to the city. The city of the new Jerusalem that's coming down from heaven. Cities are important in the scriptures. They present this idea of a miniature world in that they represent the wholeness of the earth. Why? There are languages in the city. There are peoples, plural, in the city. There are rulers and workers, houses and gardening, craftsmanship along with the marketplace. And all these subject areas of the economy, business, law, medicine, family, religion, and education, they're all represented with the gathering of a people in a city. And Isaiah spent most of his time ministering in the city of Jerusalem. You remember Isaiah 40. George Friedrich Handel remembers Isaiah 40 well <laughs> in the Handel's Messiah there. That Isaiah in chapter 40 would be high up on a mountain. He even summons all of Zion to be high up on a mountain. What? And to lift up your voice, O Jerusalem, lift it up. Remember that line out of the Handel's Messiah. And lift it up and say to the cities of Judah, behold your God. Isaiah is given to the city. And it's a theme in his book, of course, because he's at the physical city there in Jerusalem. Our Lord Jesus was moved with compassion about the city. He said in Matthew 23, O Jerusalem, Jerusalem. Same city with, with Isaiah. The very prophet of God, the prophet, the son of God, who himself is truth, expressing this pity, O Jerusalem, O Jerusalem, the city that kills the prophets and stones those who are sent to it. How often I would have gathered your children together as a hen gathers her brood. Remember that lesson? God addresses the city. What about Houston? <laughs> right? I thought to myself this week, driving in Houston has its headaches. Amen? <laughs> Tongue-in-cheek on that, of course. But the city, I was one time out in Los Angeles. I've got to tell this quick story. I was one time out in Los Angeles with another fellow seminarian. We were both going to school out at Westminster Theological in Escondido, San Diego County. And his name is Paul, and Paul was actually going back home to see his folks, and they lived up in North L.A. And I, I, I'm not sure why we were both in the same vehicle together driving. Maybe I was dropping him off or something, and I was going to go on north through the city. But I turned to Paul, and I said, Paul, here we are in these major Los Angeles freeways. You know, and I said... Uh, do you find it depressing to live here? And he said, not at all. He said, Mark, when I drive these freeways, I see, I see a mission field around me. <laughs> you know, I, 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 I see the myriads of peoples and their backgrounds and, and their plight. And they need the gospel, you know. So he, 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 he corrected me on that. Um. Tuesday night when I was driving back across town uh, from being up in the northern part of the city with Nick LeMay, driving back, um, 
6.30, whatever it was, 7 o'clock at night, and just like now, it, it was dark, but boy, the, the lights were lit up. You know, the city of Houston, that whole skyline, just bright as ever and everything, captures the eye, and it just reminds us as we're in this city to pray and to pursue holiness in the city, to be that light set upon a hill as the city of God, as the people of God, um, and I put down these kinds of words. Lord, take my work, the work of my hands and the work of my heart, and set it apart for you. Lord, in the labor of my deeds or in the labor of my words, yes, O Lord, may ye be glorified in this city. Isaiah was given to the city of Jerusalem. That is his setting in carrying out ministry. Now, I want to take just a couple more minutes and talk about Isaiah just a little bit more. If you have this handout, I'd like you to turn to that just for a moment. If you have this handout here, I put that in the bulletin tonight. Just a little bit more information about something of the setting and the scene of Isaiah. Uh, up at the top there is the history flow chart, so to speak. Back to the back, left-hand side of the page is Abraham and the patriarchs out of the book of Genesis. And if you're to read down through the chronological period, time periods through Bible history, you get on down over to the right there, you'll see at the top there it says 1000 B.C. Roughly David, King David, is serving at about 1000 B.C. And so what I want you to note here is that Isaiah is carrying out ministry roughly around 740 B.C. So it gives you an idea. So he's, you know, he's a good 300 years, right, roughly, whatever. Um, after King David. But from Saul, the first king of Israel, then David, and Solomon, you've got about 120 years, 130 years, where the kingdom is united, right? Israel is one nation for about 120, 130 years for those first three kings, Saul and David and Solomon. But then the kingdom is divided. And I have here for you on the chart, Israel is divided to the north, named Israel proper in many of our Bible books. And the capital city is Samaria. And then, of course, Judah remains to the south. And the capital is Jerusalem. There are 19 kings to the north. Every one of them are wicked. Idolatry, uh, you know, to, 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 the, to the tippy top. They were on their tiptoes committing idolatry. They were on their tiptoes to get to idolatry, sadly. Uh, just the, the wickedness of the kings, of the uh, 19 kings that are narrated for us, you know, through the books of Kings and Chronicles. There are 20 kings in the south, eight of which, one, two, three, four, five, and three, eight of which are righteous. I always remember that when I was in Bible college. 19, 20, zero unrighteous, eight righteous. 19, 20, zero, eight. The eight are righteous kings to the south there. And of course, both, both of these nations, right? Israel to the north is shipped off in captivity. And then uh, uh, Judah to the south is shipped off eventually in captivity later on. You'll see the map. Next little part there of our handout, you'll see the map and you get an idea. Once again, it's not the best. Taking this off of the internet here, but uh, a little smudgy there to read. But you'll see Judah down to the south there by the Dead Sea and the city of Jerusalem just to the north there. Israel up closer to the north to the Sea of Galilee there, and you'll see Samaria, the capital of Israel. 
at least you have an idea of what we're talking about here in the land and something of these locations. Now, once again, uh, I have here uh, just a lesson for us to keep in mind at the very bottom of this handout is that um, the, 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 the four books, the four Bible books out of the Old Testament that are quoted the most in the New, the four Bible books that are quoted the most in the New are those four down below there, Genesis, Deuteronomy, our Bible book, Isaiah, and the Psalms. And so many Bible teachers will tell us, if you want to look at some, those are supposed to be mountain peaks. My, 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 <laughs> my tracing is not, my, my artwork is not the best. But Bible teachers will tell us that if you want to get acquainted with the relationship between the Old and the New Testaments, uh, bear in mind, I have a quote here, there are 224 Bible verses explicitly, 224 Old Testament Bible verses explicitly quoted in the New with the words, it is written, or where it says, or some other kind of formula like that. The New Testament has 224 direct quotations. The vast majority of those 224 are from these four Bible books, Genesis, Deuteronomy, Isaiah, and the book of Psalms. The New Testament has allusions, has allusions to virtually all of the Bible books, but there are these direct quotations from 224. Now, all I want to suggest here by giving you this little bottom little chart sort of thing with these mountain peaks is that these are the peaks in Scripture. So when you're studying Genesis or Deuteronomy, Isaiah, Psalms, you're studying the mountain peaks where there's the wealth of Bible and theology coming from these Bible books that are going to now be brought over into the New Testament to give us that kind of commentary and to expand on those lessons, what's being taught in Genesis, what's being taught in Deuteronomy, what's being taught in Isaiah, what's being taught in various Psalms, and expand it on or bring some kind of illumination to us in the New Testament. So as we take up Isaiah here for these few lessons in the month of December, the rest of this month, we're walking into a mountain peak. This is a, this is a huge area, a vast field of Bible and theology that we must be uh, giving ourselves to. So that gives you some background again and some importance and significance. We're talking about Isaiah uh, serving uh, around 740 B.C. He served about 60 years, about 60 years in the city of Jerusalem to the south in Judah, given to the city of Jerusalem. And his, his own lessons and his theology are significant for us with respect to the quotations we find in the New Testament. So this is a very significant Bible book to be studying. That's the setting. Let's go to the place here for just our clothing minutes. The place of his ministry. The place of his ministry. Go back to chapter 1 in Isaiah. Go back to chapter 1 in Isaiah with me. Those opening words once again. The place of his ministry. The vision of Isaiah, the son of Amoz, which he saw concerning Judah and Jerusalem in the days of Uzziah, Jotham, Ahaz and Hezekiah, kings of Judah, hear, O heavens, and give ear, O earth, for the Lord has spoken. Children have I reared and brought up, but they have rebelled against me. The ox knows its owner, and the donkey its master's crib, but Israel does not know my people do not understand. Ah, sinful nation, a people laden with iniquity, offering offspring of evildoers, children who deal corruptly. 
they have forsaken the Lord. They have despised the Holy One of Israel. They are utterly estranged. Turn your eyes over to verse 23, chapter 123. Isaiah has words directly to the leadership, to public officials of Jerusalem. Your princes are rebels, verse 23, and companions of thieves. And what are these princes and rulers doing? Everyone loves a bribe. These kings and princes are about receiving bribes and they're running after gifts. Particularly, they have no compassion on those who are particularly needy. They do not bring justice to the fatherless and the widow's cause does not come to them. Therefore, the Lord declares, the Lord of hosts, the mighty one of Israel, Ah, I will get relief from my enemies and avenge myself on my foes. The place of Isaiah's ministry is with those who have a kingly office. You have the deliberate reference in chapter 1 with verse 1 that he's going to labor in ministry during the time of Uzziah and Jotham and Ahaz and Hezekiah, plural, kings of Judah. Particularly, these are the ones that are noted of the times in which he labors and serves. The book of Isaiah gives, I believe, three chapters, 37, 38, and 39, all devoted to Isaiah's ministry to Hezekiah. So Isaiah is walking into a scene where likely his knees are knocking and his palms are sweaty <laughs> because he's going to authorities, the kings of the earth. But do you see in this same chapter at verse 2 that God gives him the word, the truth. This is the very word of God spoken through this man's mouth. And yet Isaiah is given the perspective to answer the question in so many words. He, he's given the perspective of answering this question. Who is really number one? Is it the kings of the earth? Not on your life. Who is really number one? Who has all authority? Look at verse 2. Hear, O heavens, and give ear, O earth. The Lord has spoken. He begins his whole prophecy and his prophetic ministry of teaching and his rebukes and his confrontation of the kings of the earth by reminding these kings and these princes, those whom he chiefly addresses, you think you have a heavenly court and a lofty place of stature. I address the heavens itself and the earth beneath. That's to say, God is Lord over all. This is the place of his ministry, going before the kings of the earth. However, he sets it in this context that God is sovereign. Quickly turn with me back to chapter 66. This is the very last book. The very last book, or sorry, last chapter of the book. The very last chapter of this Bible book, chapter 66. Look how 66 opens. If one, chapter 1 opens this way, hear, O heavens, and give ear, O earth. The context of God's sovereign lordship. He summons the whole heavens, the whole earth, to give heed to the one who's going to speak here. Look at chapter 66. Thus says the Lord, heaven is my throne and the earth is my footstool. What is the house that you would build for me? And what is the place of my rest? 
all these things my hand has made, and so all these things came to be, declares the Lord. But this is the one to whom I will look, who is humble and contrite in spirit and does what? And trembles at my word. The Bible book opens on this theme of the heavenly majesty and, and then the heavens itself are to heed the word of God. And as well, the very earth. He summons the earth in chapter 1. Oh, earth, the Lord has spoken to you. Then back here in 66, heaven is my throne and the earth is my footstool. And what's implied is don't tremble before kings. Jesus told us. They will kill the body. Fear him, right? Who can kill the body, both the body and the soul. Heaven is my throne and the earth is my footstool. Do you see how comprehensive Isaiah's ministry that he's been entrusted to, he is being a voice of God addressing heaven itself, likely meaning angels, <laughs> those that would be within earshot maybe even of the invisible, as we would say, unseen, the unseen creation, to heed the voice of God, and of course what is seen upon the earth. Surely it's also implied, surely it means that the Lord is seated in the heavenly places, the heaven is his throne, and the earth is his place of resting his feet. I will stop here with one application. We'll come back to these lessons next time. We'll move on further in the book as well. Of course, I'd like to get up to chapter 7 about the virgin birth. We'll get there. But I stop here on this one particular lesson. Isaiah, surely by implication, is the prefiguring of the Lord Jesus Christ who spoke truth. Remember before Herod before Pilate, he would speak the truth. Pilate asks him, what is truth? Are you the son of God? Remember those lessons? Here the prophet Isaiah is prefiguring one who would stand before the earthly leaders, whether they be civil or religious authorities. And the Bible goes on to speak of the Lord Jesus Christ this way in the book of Peter. He committed no sin, neither was there deceit found in his mouth. When he was reviled at his arrest, when he was reviled in his place of being perhaps under the harness of men or captive by men, uh, vulnerable to the threats of men. When he was reviled, he did not revile in return. When he suffered, he did not threaten, but continued entrusting himself to him who judges justly. Who's the righteous judge? Who's the righteous king? Who's the righteous prince? His father. And he himself bore our sins in his body on the tree that we might die to sin and live to righteousness. By his wounds you have been healed. Isaiah surely prefigures for us the Lord Jesus Christ in that he's God's mouthpiece to Jerusalem and to the kings and princes, those four kings particularly that are echoed for or mentioned for us here in this chapter. But certainly Isaiah knows, he's going to tell us right in chapter 6, he knows his own sin. He lives among a sinful people. And in that regard, completely unlike the Lord Jesus. 
Jesus is the one who committed no sin. No deceit was found in his mouth. So in Christ Jesus, as you adorn Christ by faith, in Christ Jesus, as you adorn Christ by faith, I want to challenge us this week. Fear God and speak the truth. The Proverbs say, Proverbs 27 says, open rebuke is better than hidden love. Faithful are the wounds of a friend. Isaiah brought a message of chastisement and judgment and correction. And the proverb is telling us in Christ Jesus, we have a ministry. Christ has commissioned his church. And for many of us, we are given to the fear of man. We cower before those who have authority. We cower before those because we want to be well-liked. In Christ Jesus, he who committed no sin equips us. By faith, we walk in Christ. And the proverb tells us, Solomon, this king, David's son, Solomon told us, open rebuke is better than hidden love. Faithful are the wounds of a friend. Teaching the truth, presenting the truth, speaking the truth, walking in the truth is the ministry that the church is called to, and that is Isaiah's ministry. And so, as we're entrusted this week by the Holy Spirit to take the word of God, maybe do so, praying and praying in faithfulness. Lord, use me. <laughs> I wrote a report, I stop here, I wrote a report this week when Nick and I were out on Tuesday night my last sentence in that report was, brothers, it's one thing for us, I'm writing to these men in the church, the OPC, it's one thing for us to go and visit these families. In so many words I said, it's another thing for us to get down to brass tacks and present the gospel to these families, right? And that means speaking the truth in love. We know they're hurting families. These are hurting Hurricane Harvey families but we have to stand on the truth and walk in the truth and speak the truth. Let's pray. Our Father in heaven, we would pray that you would be pleased to use us this week in ministry and service. Uh, you have summoned us that in Christ Jesus, the very sinless one, the servant of servants, the very son of God, he came to destroy the devil the works of the devil. He came, Lord, to be that faithful servant, our abiding Savior, to rescue us and to commission us. Lord, this is your church down through history. Uh, teach us that there are people around us hurting, lost, in their ruin, blind in their ways, and Lord, you have placed into our hands truth, the truth. Make us ambassadors. Make us faithful in our stewardship. In Christ Jesus we pray. Amen.